Good evening. Glad that you're here. If you will, turn with me to Ezekiel 37. I'm going to read a text there and pray. Ezekiel 37. We'll drop down to verse 24. I'll read there from verses 24 through 27, and then we'll pray. Ezekiel 37, verse 24. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand your word. You'd help us to understand the unfolding covenant promise of Christ. Emmanuel, God with us. We pray that as we walk through the text of scripture tonight and consider him and the promise of him and the various ways in which he was revealed and offered to your people, that you would help us to remember that you are one God with one faith and one people, that you are God and Father of all, who is in all and through all. And we pray that we would look to Christ and be thankful. Give us understanding, guard us from error, Help us to be charitable in agreement and disagreement. May your son be exalted in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of items just to get started. I'm going to walk through a series of texts tonight, some of which you guys have heard me walk through maybe dozens of times, even showing you the same connection, but with a bit of a different, if you will, twist tonight as we address this issue of baptism. If you're a guest this evening, and I saw some, sorry that you're here as a guest tonight on this particular night and weren't here this morning to hear kind of the setup. But I'm dealing with the issue of baptism and why I changed from being a Baptist to not being one. Now, I want to start off maybe here. For many years, I just knew in my bones that the Baptists were right. I haven't had an argument. I knew it at the core. I'm not saying all Baptists are this way. I'm saying I was this way. I want to be really clear. I knew it in my bones that they were right. I thought the Presbyterian Reformed, or the PNR, I'll say for short tonight, sometimes you might hear me say RB, I mean the Reformed Baptists, my brothers, and sometimes you'll hear me say the PNR, I mean the Presbyterian Reformed, just as a whole group. I thought the PNR were basically Papists or Roman Catholics. 
Not all Baptists think this, but I initially did. I said things like this. Have these people ever read their Bibles? Now, some of you were around when I was a young enough pastor to remember hearing me say that. Some of you in this room. Too bad the PNR kept these papist superstitions rather than reforming all the way. Some of you remember me saying that. Or how about this one? You know what the Bible says about baptizing infants? Nothing. Now, I want to be clear, not one of those statements was charitable nor thoughtful to any of our brothers. In fact, that is not the attitude, that is not the attitude that the original Baptists had toward their PNR brothers. Those men represented by what we today would call the Reformed Baptists, some of those men I teach with at the International Reformed Baptist Seminary, close friends of mine, that's not the attitude that their forebearers had toward our PNR brothers. Rather, they were quite desirous to hear from their PNR brothers about their disagreements. Let me quote them in their appendix to the Second London Confession that was written by these men. Yet we do heartily propose this. After stating we disagree with you, they say this. We do heartily propose this, that if any of the servants of our Lord Jesus shall in the spirit of meekness attempt to convince us of any mistake either in judgment or practice, we shall diligently ponder his arguments and account him our chiefest friend that shall be an instrument to convert us from any error that is in our ways. So here's what I'm asking you to do to be like these early Baptists, to diligently ponder the arguments that we've laid out over the next several weeks. And I hope at the end you will account me your chiefest friend as we try to correct what I think is an error. So what I am hoping from all of you is that you would be committed to learning and understanding this doctrine, even if in the end we end up disagreeing. That's okay. That's okay. With that said, I want to begin by pointing out this. If you will, I want to start setting the table for making the argument. Here's what I want to be clear on that everybody agrees with. All biblical sacraments belong to covenants. All biblical sacraments, baptism, the Lord's Supper, circumcision, and Passover, they belong to covenants. Those signs, if you will, the sacraments, do not exist on their own. They're called covenant signs and or seals for a reason. By sign, we mean that they are a visible word that shows to us some covenant promise. By seal, we mean that the signs are a kind of guarantee that God is good for his word. Thus, what a sacrament like baptism means, it's a sacrament or sign of baptism means, and who has a right to baptism must be argued from the scriptures. I'm often asked, if it's such an important issue, and it's an important issue, as you heard me say quite clearly this morning, it isn't an essential issue, but it's an important issue. If it's such an important issue, then why isn't it just more simple and easy? Shouldn't it be simple? Now, I'm going to deal with that more later, but my preliminary answer is that many of the important doctrines in Christianity are not simple and easy. If it's worth believing, so I'll give you an example, Trinity, Jesus, 
the fall of man, God's decrees, election, the will of man. Are any of those things easy? No. Okay. But they're worth contemplation and speculation. I mean, in the good sense and prayer and study. The important doctrines are worth that. And that's what both the Reformed Baptists and the PNR do. They both argue from the covenants, which you hear this, from the covenants to their signs. But they argue to different conclusions. So I want to show you in this series why I came to the conclusion, why I came to the conclusion that the PNR are right, though some of you have a different conclusion, and that's perfectly fine. Here is my central contention through the whole series. And so, in other words, the next four Sundays, here's all I'm going to argue. Are you ready? What we believe about God's covenant and God's people really determines the question of who we baptize. What we believe about God's covenant and God's people really determines the question of who we baptize. I could say what we believe about the signs determines the question, as the signs do matter, but the signs are actually caught up in our view of God's covenant and God's people. So let me begin my argument in a nutshell. And when I give this argument in a nutshell, it's going to give you, you're going to see right away where the key disagreement is. I want you to hear it. I have two premises and a conclusion. So I'll give you premise one, premise two, conclusion. You'll notice immediately that premise two is where the disagreement is. Thus, the conclusion is different. So listen, premise one, all who are members of the new covenant people receive the new covenant sign of baptism. You guys hear that? Premise one, all who are members of the new covenant people receive the new covenant sign of baptism. Everyone agrees on this. Baptist, PNR, all agree on that. Premise two, here comes the disagreement. Believers and their children are members of the new covenant people. That's where we disagree. And their children. We agree on the first part. Believers, dot, 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 are members of the new covenant people. It's that and their children part where the disagreement comes in. Now here comes the conclusion. Remember the first premise. All those who are members of the new covenant people receive the covenant sign of baptism. Premise two, believers and their children are members of the new covenant people. Conclusion, thus believers and their children receive the new covenant sign of baptism. Now that's where we disagree as well. We disagree in the conclusion because we disagree about premise two. Are believers and their children both accounted as part of the new covenant people of God? Because Baptists do not accept the second premise that children of believers are members of the new covenant people, they reject the conclusion that their children also have a right to the sign of baptism. You guys tracking with me? So our whole series for the next four weeks will be the covenant of God tonight, the covenant of God next Sunday. In other words, how is the new covenant different? Is it in what ways? And then the people of God. And have the people of God changed? It's all we're going to talk about. Because if you agree on the second premise, we all agree on the first premise. If we agree on the second premise, then the conclusion follows. If we don't, the conclusion doesn't. We're not arguing over whether or not the sign of baptism saves anyone. None of us believe the sign of baptism saves anyone. 
we all agree that someone is only justified through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Rather, the debate is really about God's covenant and God's people. What is the new covenant? And who are the people in that new covenant? What is the new covenant and who are the people in it? That's the whole debate. After that, we'll spend two weeks, if you will, after we spend time on the covenant of God, we're going to spend time on the covenant people. So let me begin my argument by stating that we believe in the PNR world that there is one covenant promise. One covenant promise. And we'll look at tonight at that one covenant promise. And as we do, we're going to discuss how that covenant promise is administered differently throughout the biblical covenants. So one promise with different administrations throughout the biblical covenants. And here's my simple contention tonight. Every biblical covenant promises the same substance or the same what. What is being promised in every biblical covenant? I'm saying every biblical covenant promises the same substance. And what is that one substance that every biblical covenant, I say, promises? The answer I'll give you is Christ and all that you receive in him. Christ and all that you receive in him. I do not mean, this is where fine distinctions come in, and we'll talk about this in coming weeks. I do not mean that every biblical covenant merely reveals Christ. All the Baptists agree that all the biblical covenants reveal Christ. I'm not merely saying that. I also mean, if you will, that Christ and his benefits or what every biblical covenant fundamentally offers to the people. Christ is the promise in every biblical covenant. He's the object of faith in every covenant. The grace of Christ is being administered in every biblical covenant. Every biblical covenant is both revealing and offering him. That's the whole argument when I talk about one covenant. That doesn't answer every question, but that's the whole Argument. So let's begin by looking at Genesis 3.15. Let's begin there. What is being promised? Look at Genesis 3.15. You guys are familiar with this passage. I've been walking through Genesis for some time, so I'm not going to get into detailed exegesis. But I just want to ask a question and start moving. This is where God comes to the serpent and curses the serpent, giving us what we call the mother promise of all the other promises. I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Here's the question. What is being promised here? We are being promised, if you will, the answer to the problem of Genesis 3. We're being offered the answer to the problem of Genesis 3. What is the problem in Genesis 3? What was lost due to the fall of Adam and Eve. Well, Adam was no longer God's people, dwelling in God's place under God's rule and blessing. He was now under the curse. He was kicked out of the garden, God's place. And man's great need is to dwell with God. Our great need is to be with God and for God to be with us. That's life. You guys understand that? In him is life. Separation from God is death. Our great need is to be with God and him with us. 
We call this the Emmanuel principle. Emmanuel means God with us. Adam was under the wrath of God and the penalty of sin, which is death. And in Adam's fall, sinned we all. All mankind was plunged into guilt and corruption, separation of God and death. And the Lord makes a promise to restore all that was lost. And he does that in Genesis 3.15. The promise was the seed of the woman who would crush Satan and all her enemies. Adam believes that promise, Genesis 3.20, and the Lord covers his shame with the cutting of animals, Genesis 3.21. Adam related to God on the basis of his own law-keeping in Genesis 2. Genesis 2, Adam's relating to God, his relation to God covenantally is on the basis of his own law-keeping. Now that Adam has descended into sin, he could not relate to God on the basis of his own law-keeping or works. Could not relate to God that way. As a sinner, he could only relate to God on the basis of a gracious covenant, a covenant in which a mediator would be given for him. You understand, prior to the fall, Adam didn't need a mediator. Post-fall, he does. And that covenant mediator is Jesus Christ. And that covenant of grace, that covenant that offers Christ and his saving benefits, that covenant, what I'm contending, begins right here in history. Begins in history. If it did not, then there is no covenant operating by which Adam could be saved. Further, we can argue it began here on the basis of textual evidence in Genesis. Not only on the basis of what we see with regard to the form of life that Adam takes, where they understand they have to have sacrifices and worship, and we see all that through before we ever get to Abraham or Moses. But we can see it in the use of the word covenant. In Genesis 6.18, we get the first use of the word covenant. When we come to Noah, we hear that God made a covenant with Noah. Genesis 6.18, God made a covenant with Noah. But the Hebrew there is not that God started a covenant with Noah. It's not what the Hebrew word means there. The language is that God caused his covenant to stand with Noah. What covenant was caused to stand with Noah? What covenant? I'm contending it's the covenant of grace that begins in Genesis 3.15. It isn't the covenant of works. If God caused that to stand with Noah, Noah would be damned. I'm saying it's the covenant of grace. Whether you like that title or not, you have to admit that it's a covenant based on grace and not works. How do we know that? Because God showed grace to Noah. I argue this at length in Genesis, so I'm going to keep moving. Genesis argues at length. The point I'm making here is important, though. Noah related to God covenantally by grace in a covenant that existed before Noah. Noah had a covenant mediator, Jesus Christ. And Noah believed in him. Noah offered an atoning sacrifice, if you guys remember when he got off the ark, pointing to his understanding that he needed atonement for his sin and he could not provide that atonement. And the New Testament, in more than one place, shows us that Noah trusted in Christ. In fact, that he was a herald of the gospel of Christ. And frankly, Hebrews 11 tells us that Abel and Enoch trusted in the Christ before Noah. 
And we have no reason to doubt that they learned of God's covenant promise from Adam. You guys understand, when Noah comes along, Adam's still alive. Go do the dating, the years. He's still alive. Now, I want to pause here and notice how each of these stories, if you will, from Genesis 3.15 to Noah, begins to increase our clarity as to what we're receiving in the Christ. We start to gain insight into him. He will be the second Adam. He will be the mediator who crushed the serpent rather than given his temptations. He will subdue all his enemies, Genesis 3.15, like a king. He will atone for our sins, as you would see with Noah, like a priest serving the Lord, as Adam was too in the garden. And him alone is where we'll find grace. He will bring us back to dwelling with God. In Christ, we will be God's people dwelling with God in his place under his rule and blessing. That's starting to take form more and more clearly what the Christ will do as we move through Genesis. Now let's move forward and consider Abraham. With Abraham, we get what I'm going to call the paradigmatic administration of this covenant of grace. What do I mean by that? I mean that everything in the rest of the Bible will be built upon the covenant with Abraham. The rest of the Bible. Even the new covenant will be founded upon the promise of the covenant with Abraham. If you don't believe that, you haven't read the New Testament. When Jesus comes incarnate, God is keeping his promise, his covenant to Abraham. Both in Mary's Magnificat and in Zechariah's prophecy. In fact, in Zechariah's prophecy, David's covenant, Moses' covenant, and Abraham's covenant are all caught up there. In the incarnation of the Christ. When you believe, you are a child of Abraham. The promise of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is the promise to Abraham, Galatians 3.14. He is the paradigmatic, the paradigmatic covenant or administration of the covenant. Everything in the rest of the Bible is built upon that promise to him, even the new covenant. So what is Abraham's covenant promise? Look at Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. And we're going to spend... A lot of time in Abraham for the next several weeks on Sunday morning. Several of the stories aren't going to be tied directly to this, obviously. But we'll be looking at that in detail. So again, I'm going to move pretty quickly through Abraham. Look at Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram. Now remember the Lord's calling out a pagan here. And a pagan family. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country. That's your nation where you live. And your kindred, his family. And your father's house, that's as, if you will, out from underneath his father's authority, to the land that I will show you. So, Abram, the first thing you're being promised when you go out, he's got all these commands. I'm going to deal with that next Sunday morning. All these commands, there's a promise at the end of that set of commands. Land. It's the first thing. Land. Now notice the next thing. And I will make of you a great nation. There's your second promise. A great nation. You'll learn later that he means a fruitful and multiplying people picked up from Genesis 1.28. You guys remember? God said to Adam, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then he tells Abraham in Genesis 17, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and multiply you. And kings will come from you. You're going to become this great nation. So land, a people, if you will, or a nation, a people or a nation, a multiplying fruitful people, and I will bless you 
and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. You'll be blessed and you'll be a blessing to the nations. Notice what he says in verse 3. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Scholars are pretty universally agreed that there are three parts to this promise. One, land. Two, seed or a multiplying people. And three, a blessing to the nations. That the seed will be the blessing to the nations. And this will all be delivered through Abraham's offspring. Genesis 12, 7 will pick that up. Genesis 17 will pick that up. And Genesis 22 will pick that up. And do you know who Abraham's offspring is? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Galatians 3. The promise was given to Abraham and to his offspring, who is the Christ. Not just the promise is fulfilled by Jesus. The promise of the Abrahamic covenant is given to Jesus. Paul says that. So these three strands run through the whole Bible, don't they? Land, multiplying seed, and blessing to all the nations. And they can be easily summed up, and they are summed up, in the Emmanuel principle. I will be your God, and you will be my people. A people to have God as your God as your greatest blessing. And if you remember, what's the other one? I'll be your God, you my people. And you dwell with him. You dwell with him. Now you'll come in, or you're in land, his dwelling place. You'll come into my land to dwell with me. You'll have a fruitful and multiplying people that will fill the whole earth and who are mine, and thus all the nations will be blessed. Now Abraham knew, Abraham knew that all this pointed to something greater than Palestine and the nation of Israel. Romans 4 and Hebrews 11 make that perfectly clear. That Abraham knew that the land promise was for a land much greater than Palestine. In fact, it was for the new heavens and the new earth. We'll be spending a lot of time on Abraham, like I said, next week. So all I want to do is say this. We can see the picture of the Christ becoming clearer in Abraham. In fact, we're shown that Abraham is not only related to this place of dwelling with God, this multiplying fruitful seed, and this offspring who will bless all the nations so that we might dwell with God, but we're told there's an atoning sacrifice related to the seed of Abraham. Genesis 22, when Abraham offers his son Isaac on Mount Moriah, which happens to be in Jerusalem, by the way, and not incidentally, Abraham says to his son, on the mountain it will be provided. You guys remember that? And the Lord provides a goat in the place of Isaac. And in that place, we learn that the Christ will rule over his enemies and the nations obey him and that he'll atone for our sins. We learn he'll atone for our sins in that typical picture of the offering, but we also learn that he'll rule over the nations. Listen to what it says in Genesis twenty-two seventeen. Let's turn there. Just listen. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And Abraham's seed will come, we learn later in Genesis, in the latter days. He'll possess the gate of his enemies. He'll bless the whole earth. He'll bring the atoning sacrifice. We'll dwell with God in him. He'll do all of this. We're learning he's the second Adam. He's going to be God with us in some way. We're learning all of this already. When you get to Genesis 49, you learn he's not only going to possess the gate of his enemies, but like the king you would expect, 
he's going to possess it as a king. And to him will be the obedience of the peoples. Genesis 49.1, in the latter days. And then Jacob blesses his sons. And when Jacob blesses his sons, he comes to Judah and says to Judah that the king will be from the tribe of Judah and to him will be the obedience of the nations. So we know he's a king. Sovereign grace. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all believed in the Christ. He was offered to them in Abraham's covenant. He was not merely revealed to them there. He was their Lord and Savior. And Abraham's family, the 12 tribes of Israel, grew into a nation. And when we come to Exodus, they're under slavery to Pharaoh. And they cry out to God. At the end of Genesis, there's 70 of them. When you come to Exodus 1, they're a mighty nation. They've been fruitful and multiplied. Listen to Exodus 2, 24, as they're in slavery to Pharaoh. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So the exodus, the exodus is God saving his people on the basis of God's promise to Abraham. Now listen to what God tells Israel through Moses. You ready? Exodus 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I'll redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. All that you're familiar with. Listen to the next part. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who's brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession I am the Lord. God will keep his covenant promise to Abraham. And what is that central promise? The Emmanuel principle. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will dwell with you. He will bring them to the land as a nation, as he promised to Abraham. And he will be their God and they will be his people. In Exodus 19 through 24, which I'm not going to ask you to turn to for the sake of time. God makes a covenant at Sinai with Israel. There's a lot to talk about there. But let's just, we'll just name it what we name it, the Mosaic Covenant or the Old Covenant. He makes that covenant with them. He makes a covenant with them as a nation. God makes his law clear for Israel by writing it on tablets of stone. But Israel does not become, please hear this, Israel does not become God's people on the basis of that Mosaic Covenant. They are God's people whom he's delivered, and he is their God. Moses' covenant doesn't establish them as God's people. Moses' covenant tells the covenant people how they're to live in the land with the Lord. It administers the covenant with Abraham. I'm your God. I'm going to make you into a nation. I'm going to bring you into a land. I'm going to bring a king from you. Okay, now, I've delivered you. I'm your God. I'm taking that land. You've multiplied your nation like I said you would. Now, here's how you're going to live as a blessing to the nations and how you'll be blessed. Here's your law. And it provides them the law, the tabernacle, the instructions for priests, for sacrifices, etc., so that they might dwell with God. If they're to dwell with God, they must be holy. And they cannot be holy apart from atonement for their sins. Their life together is being administered differently under Moses than it was under Abraham. 
but their life together is on the basis of the same covenant promise. The fundamental promise is the same. How do I know that? Leviticus, not only Exodus 2, I'll save you because of my promise to Abraham. Not only Exodus 6, I'll be your God, you'll be my people. Not only Exodus 19, I delivered you. Not only Exodus 20, I am the Lord, right? You remember that? Who brought you out of the land of Egypt? Now do this. But also on the basis of Leviticus 26, 9 through 12. Listen to what he says. Leviticus 26, 9 through 12. Clearly, right in the Mosaic Covenant. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you. You guys hearing the same language again and again? And will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat store long kept, and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will mock among you and be your God, and you will be my people. The covenant with Moses is now the covenant through which God administers his relationship with his covenant people until the Christ comes. It is a pedagogue, a kind of household servant that oversees the children until they're mature. In other words, the way Paul presents it in Galatians 3 is that Moses' covenant is laid on top of Abraham's covenant. Here's the covenant of promise. It's not annulled by adding the law. And Moses' covenant oversees the children, if you will. God's people as immature children until maturity comes. And Paul says, when does the maturity come? When the son, the heir, the Christ comes. And then the pedagogue, Moses' covenant, goes away. This is like what you would need in a household at that time. If you were a rich man and you had heirs, in your household you would have what was called a pedagogue. That was a household servant. And that household servant would keep your children, the heirs to your inheritance, in check while they were children. Keep them in line until they reached maturity, at which time they would become the heirs. And Paul's comparing Moses to that. It's keeping the children or Israel in line until the maturity, and the maturity is the son comes. So from Moses, we get an even clearer picture of Christ. Moses did not serve a different covenant people with a i.e. something other than the church, with different covenant promises, i.e. the Christ, than the Christ did, or than I do. Moses served in the house of which Christ is the son. Listen to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify Listen to what Moses did, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. Same household of faith, friends. Same church. Moses a servant, Christ the son. Moses administered the same covenant promise, Christ, to the same covenant people, the church, in a different covenantal administration. Or maybe I should say, as well, a different period in the history of salvation. He administered the same promise through a legal administration in the former days. But the promise, Christ, and the people of God, the church, were the same. 
Now, we learn more about the Christ in Moses than we knew under Abraham, don't we? Each covenant administration makes the promise even clearer. We learn that the Christ must obey God from the heart, as Adam failed to do. That he must love God wholly and without imperfection. He must be the priest who offers the atoning sacrifice. He must be the Passover lamb, the atonement for our sins, who takes away the sins of the world. He must be the godly and humble servant king. You'll say, we learned that in Moses? Yes, Deuteronomy 17. He must be the prophet greater than Moses. We learned that in Moses? Yes, Deuteronomy 18. By the way, those texts are cited in the New Testament as well. He must be the firstborn son of God who comes out of Egypt. Exodus 4, Hosea 11, Matthew 2. The Christ will be the one who takes us to God's place to dwell with them as God's people. Now, Christ was not merely being revealed in Mosaic covenants, types and shadows. Christ was being offered to the people in and through those types and shadows. They were being saved by and through him. Moses trusted in the Christ. Hebrews 11. Friends, there is not now, nor has there ever been, another name under heaven by which men must be saved, but the name... Of Jesus Christ. That's true Old Testament. That's true New Testament. Now you know the story from here for Israel, don't you? From Moses making this covenant. Israel goes in the land. They go through all kinds of issues. I'm going to sweep over hundreds of years of history. And say eventually they ask for a king. You guys remember that. First Samuel. They asked for a king. But they asked for a king like the nations. And they chose a king from the tribe of Benjamin. Not the tribe that God promised the king would come from. God's word was clear that the king would come from the tribe of Judah. They chose a king who was well regarded by men. But the Mosaic covenant was clear, Deuteronomy 17, that he needed to be a man after God's own heart. What they needed was a godly, humble, shepherd king who loved God, his law, and his people. That's what they needed. Eventually, God gave them David as king, and David is called the man after God's own heart. But he was not the Christ. He gave us a good picture of the Christ in many regards. He loved God. He obeyed God. He desired to restore God's people to the worship of God, to dwelling with God. Remember, he brings the Ark of the Covenant in and wants to build the temple. He conquered the enemies of God's peoples. He united the 12 tribes into one people, and he gave the people a period of peace in the land. Even foreign kings were blessed by him and then by his son Solomon. He was a type of the king that God promised in the Abrahamic covenant. The king described in the Mosaic covenant. But he was not the Messiah. However, God made a covenant with David regarding the Messiyah. Listen to 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 14. When your days are fulfilled, David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And by the way, in that language is the Emmanuel principle. I'll be your God, you'll be my people. That's the greatest expression of it. I'll be your father, you'll be my son. In case you don't see it there, though, listen to David's response 
2 Samuel 7, 24, David says this, And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God. In every covenant, the Emmanuel principle, every covenant without exception, the Emmanuel principle. God will be our God. We will be his people. He will be God with us. He will do so through David's greater son, our shepherd king, who will love God and his law and his people with his whole heart. He will establish David's throne for eternity. That king will restore the true worship of God. He will lead us into green pastures and restore our souls. He will give us peace from our enemies all around. And from here on out in the book of Kings, if you remember the book of Kings, from here on out, we see the Mosaic Covenant mediated mediated through David's sons, the kings of Israel and Judah. What do I mean by that? Israel's from here forward largely dealt with on the basis of whether her kings were believing and obedient or unbelieving and disobedient. Eventually, they descended into wickedness, the kings, to the point that Israel and Judah are exiled from the land. Now, here's what I've been driving you to this whole point. The exile is the great crisis of the Old Testament covenant people. It is the great crisis. To be exiled from the land where God dwells is to repeat what Adam went through, being kicked out of the garden. It's a great covenant crisis. They're no longer in the land. They're now under the curse of the covenant. They have no king in Israel. The temple has been torn down. God no longer dwells with them. So here's the question. Has God broken his promises to Abraham, to Israel, and to David? That question comes up in Psalm 89. David actually is singing in Psalm 89, or the people are singing in Psalm 89. Hey, we're not in the land. We don't have a king. Did you break your promise to David? That question is meditated upon in Hosea. I will call you lo ami, not my people. There's no one on David's throne. Has God cast off Israel forever? Has he spurned them and forgotten to be gracious to them? Has his steadfast love come to an end? And here, in this covenant crisis, is where we get the promise of the new covenant. Of the new covenant. And it's important to remember that while Israel had violated the Mosaic covenant, God had not ceased being faithful to the Mosaic covenant because their exile was precisely what he promised if they were unbelieving and disobedient. But he also promised to be gracious to them and restore them, the remnant of Israel, after the exile. He promises that in Deuteronomy 29 and 30. He promises the exile and their restoration before any of it happens, before they're ever in the land. He would send a king who was godly and humble, who loved God and his law wholeheartedly. God promised a shepherd king who would sit on the throne forever. He promised the skull-crushing seed of the woman who would come. He promised the Christ, the Emmanuel, God with us. Now Ezekiel, where I started this evening, was a prophet addressing the covenant crisis of the exile. He's addressing it and speaking about the promised new covenant. He calls it the covenant of peace. It doesn't matter. It's the new covenant. That's what he's speaking of. So let's look at how Ezekiel describes that coming new covenant again. Go back to Ezekiel 37. And I want you to look at the description. 
after saying to the people, this passage, by the way, follows the passage of the Valley of the Dry Bones, speaking about spiritual resurrection in that parable. And he goes on to talk about the fact that he's going to unite the northern and southern kingdom in the new covenant, which, by the way, you start to see that already in Acts 1.8. The Holy Spirit will be poured out upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, southern kingdom, and Samaria, northern kingdom, and to the ends of the earth, the Gentiles. So he's going to unite them. That's that whole, there's two sticks made into one. You guys, this bizarre passage, northern and southern kingdom reunited. Now look what he goes on to say in verse 24. My servant David shall be king over them. That's the people in the new covenant. Now David's dead for a long time here. But in this new covenant, my servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. Davidic covenant. Now listen, they shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. Mosaic covenant, old covenant. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. Abrahamic covenant. Do you see what the new covenant is bringing? The central promise of the Davidic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the Abrahamic covenant. Goes on to say, the middle of verse 25, they and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them, and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. I hope you're hearing this. The new covenant will deliver all the promises of Abraham, Moses, and David. The new covenant does not deliver different covenant promises. It is a different administration in a different historical period of the same promises. And thus, when the Christ comes, he is called Emmanuel, God with us. He's the son of David and the son of Abraham. He's the son of God who comes out of Egypt. He is the shepherd king who sits on the throne of David forever. He is the priest who offered the atoning sacrifice of himself for our sins. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the prophet of God. In fact, he's better than a prophet. He is the word of God who took on flesh and tabernacled among us. He is, according to John the Baptist, picking up on Malachi 3, the messenger of the covenant. He himself is given as a covenant for his people, Isaiah 42. The new covenant is cut in his blood. He is true Israel, the suffering servant of God. He's the one who's anointed by the Spirit without measure. He's the beloved Son of God with whom God is well pleased. And he is the blessing to all the nations. He's the one who pours out the Spirit, beginning the new creation. He restores all that was lost in the fall of Adam. He's the second Adam, the one who kept the law with his whole heart and crushed Satan, sin, and death via the cross and resurrection. He subdued all our enemies. And in him, by the Spirit, we are God's people, and he is our God. Listen how Paul talks about us in 2 Corinthians 6.16. For we 
are the temple of the living God. That is Mosaic language, friends. And God said, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I hope you hear this, Sovereign Grace. There's one covenant promise being administered throughout the whole Bible. That is Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, and all our benefits in him. Now let's end the sermon with the end of all things. Look at Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. And frankly, because Jason and Russell will be going through Revelation 21 and 22, and I don't want to steal all their thunder, there's all the language of David, Moses, and Abraham is in Revelation 21 and 22. But I'm not going to steal all their thunder right now. So look at Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. You'll get the main point. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I'll give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Listen, now next week, we'll look at how the new covenant is in fact new. I haven't even addressed that. How did things change under the new covenant? What changed under the new covenant? And then we'll look at the people. So we'll turn to that next week. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the fact that you have created us to dwell with you. For life is to be with God in your presence. That is life. That is fullness of life. That is our great blessing. You created us to that end. And in spite of our sin and just separation from you that leads to death, you relentlessly pursued in every covenant to save us in your son so that we would once again dwell with you, you as our God and we as our people. And we know that is eminently found in Christ. Emmanuel, God with us, our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.